0: Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. This has been an amazing experience. It's been so, so dope. We've had so many great guests come on. And I'm just thankful that all of you all have listened, downloaded, and subscribed. But today I wanted to take a moment to honor the life of Chadwick Boseman, Black Panther, to now know what he endured all while filming iconic movies like Get on up in Black Panther, Marshall, and the Avengers is a testament not only to his strength, but also his professionalism and sheer talent. As a Black man and as a South Carolinian, Chadwick made us proud, and he was the best of us. I want to also take a moment to honor the life of iconic Georgetown basketball head coach John Thompson. You can Google all the accomplishments, but for me, The things that stand out about John Thompson are the things you don't always hear first when people talk about John Thompson. Things like a graduation rate of 97% and taking chances on young men like Allen Iverson who deserve second chances. Allen Iverson's acceptance speech into the Basketball Hall of Fame spoke to John Thompson, the man. Coach Thompson, was saving my life? Um...
1: for giving me uh, the opportunity. Um, I was recruited by every school in the country for football and basketball. And uh, an incident happened in high school and all that was taken away. No other teams, no other schools were recruiting me anymore. My mom went to Georgetown
0: and begged him You give me a chance. And he did. To a man, what John Thompson's players will tell you is that they were obviously skilled players because of his coaching. But for so many of his players, they talk about the men they became under his leadership and tutelage. And when I look across the coaching landscape for college and professional players, especially... In a moment like the one we're now in, I understand and I see why so many players are finding their voices and reminding fans that they're Black before they're anything else. And I pray for more John Thompsons. For me, I think about coaches like Don Staley, who spoke out recently about what so many Black players and coaches are facing and feeling in this moment, where coaches aren't just there to win games, but to help student athletes and the players they coach understand who they are and how they navigate a world that so often only sees them as entertainment. So this week, we honor two men, Chadwick Boseman and John Thompson, who reminded the world that we're all so much more than entertainment. And my hope is that we honor the memories and their memories, supporting the Chadwicks and the John Thompsons among us who represent us with dignity and who reaffirm the humanity and the athletes that bring so much to our lives. Now on to our episode with my good friend and sister, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I have my good friend with me today. I'm so excited to have you.
1: Likewise. I'm glad to be here. No,
0: uh, thank you so much. Uh, Miss Brittany Packnett Cunningham. I always have to make sure. (laughs) That I add that Cunningham. Now, it's an honor to have you join us today. I am still getting my feet under me, although this is episode number 20 or so. Uh, I am the most technologically deficient millennial, um, I think, in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) So we struggle, but I'm glad you're here. So look. The way I want to get started is is talking about the arc of your career. We see you all the time on MSNBC. We've seen all the great things you've done, but many people don't know about your Teach for America days. Many people don't know about your education reform days. Yeah. Shout out to your mama too, by the way. I hope she's listening. She is uh, just
1: your biggest fan, and, and the time that you were in St. Louis speaking, she was too hyped to tell me. I met your friend Bakari. He was excellent, and I was like, "Please don't make Bakari's head any bigger than it already see, is."
0: Don't, don't be a hater. Don't be a hater. <laughs> but yeah, walk people through the arc of your career. How did Brittany Packnett Cunningham get to where she is today?
1: Well, I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm so proud of the platform that you're building. It is so essential. Uh, for a time like this. um, I'm really honored to be one of the many voices you've had on here. My career has been unexpected in so many ways, I would say on a human level. um, But as a person of faith, God clearly had all of this mapped out. And I'm just slowly but surely discovering why he put all of these things in place. So I I was raised by two activists and community leaders um, and faith leaders who were very, very clear that we had A responsibility to continue on in the tradition of black folks who do not take the status quo lightly and who uh, take our responsibility to justice very seriously. So I found myself when I graduated from WashU in St. Louis um, with an African American Studies degree in hand. (laughs) I found myself ready to join the world of of service. So I joined Teach for America. I taught in Southeast DC. I taught in Ward 8 for people who are familiar with the terrain that is Marion Barry's old ward, um, that's Congress Heights, that is uh, on the side of the Anacostia that is now becoming gentrified. And I taught 60 of the most brilliant, curious, funny eight and nine-year-olds I've ever known and learned a lot about what change looks like in practice and not just in theory. I did that for two years. I planned on going for another year and doing what we call looping with your students. So I planned on going from third grade to fourth grade. So I'd keep the same students and we could continue our work together. And then my principal at the time said, we're not going to do that anymore. And it was for me, for me, the last nail in the coffin of, of being incredibly frustrated with how the system stifles real teacher talent and teacher creativity and, and, um, teacher, parent, student relationships. So I ended up going on to Capitol Hill. I worked for our former congressman or our current congressman uh, from St. Louis and um, found myself grateful for my time in the classroom. Again, because trying to understand the space between theory and practice when it comes to justice was really important to me. It continues to be important to my career. And I, was, I worked for a progressive Democrat during a time when it was great to be a Democrat on the Hill. It was early in Obama's presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democrats still controlled the Hill. We got healthcare done. I did a lot of work on domestic social policy. So there was a lot of audience and space for those conversations. And then uh, things switched very quickly because as we know, there was a referendum on that healthcare work. And suddenly a lot of Republicans and Tea Partiers won that next that next round. And I was like, Mm, I'm already frustrated with how slowly things move in Congress, so let me see if I can be more effective from the other side. So I joined Teach for America again, but this time as an administrative staff member. Over the course of almost 10 years, I had a number of roles. Uh, I started off as one of our um, advocates on the Hill, so I worked specifically with the Black Caucus, the Hispanic Caucus, members who were representing Indigenous areas, And uh, about a third of our regions and did a lot of work uh, during that time to try to also shift the conversations inside of what people call education reform and inside of the organization to be much more about equity than they were at the time. So I was one of the co-founders of what is now Teach for America's alumni of color organization, the collective. We kept asking the org to make one and they were like taking a long time so we just started it and then they (laughs) finally fell in line. Um, Then I spent four years as our executive director in in St. Louis. Uh, So I went back home to run Teach for America there. And we served 20,000 students in classrooms every single day. Uh, It was strange and clarifying and beautiful and an amazing opportunity and privilege to be a 26-year-old Black woman leading in the community that raised me. But I also discovered a lot about um, how much the world is reticent to change the things that maintain the status quo. So in the middle of my tenure then is when Michael Brown Jr. was murdered by Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson. I lived and grew up about 15 minutes from Ferguson. Michael Brown Jr. went to a school where uh we had placed teachers and so i felt incredibly convicted about the role that i needed to continue to play to put together how i was raised my time in the classroom my time understanding policy all together in a bowl mix it (laughs) and try to play um try to play my part in seeking justice for my community seeking accountability and helping to raise the voices of people who made such incredible sacrifices on the street. Uh, So, you know, I was on the Ferguson Commission during that time, I was on President Obama's policing task force that entire time. I was still an active protester because I felt very clearly that my job was to take the expertise I had developed, marry it with what my community was asking for on the street and I had to remain proximate to that in order to bring those voices to bear uh, at the tables that I now sat in. So all the while was still leading Teach for America, worked really hard to transform our approach regionally in uh, of teaching to one that was culturally responsive and that was really equipping young people to be the leaders that we already knew them to be. And then moved back to Washington, D.C. for a whole host of reasons. Uh, one was safety one was love one was professional mm-hmm. what's his um, name what's his name
0: <laughs> that's what uh, I- so
1: my my now husband reggie cunningham is a brilliant photographer and um media creative uh, but we met at a protest during the uprising so our journey very much tracks with my journey over the last uh six years or so um and so yeah so so we moved to dc and My job also transitioned such that I was trying to, again, help make these voices heard very clearly on the national stage. So I continued to do some work for Teach for America, left there, um, like I said, after almost 10 years and have been doing a number of things and just trying to make sure that whatever platform I have is committed to justice. So for three years, I co-hosted Pod Save the People. I co-founded an organization called Campaign Zero. Um, I've since left then and have a firm, if you will, that is focused on creating justice in every platform called love and power after a, a, a quote from Dr. King. I'm an MSNBC contributor. I'm trying like hell to finish this last book. <laughs> I mean, this first book, um, I'm in the editing process, but I've been in that process for a minute. So my editor is like uh, time is ticking brick and yeah, like being newly wed and quarantined and trying to do all of those things at the same time. So, so that's me in a nutshell.
0: That's so dope. I'm very proud and looking forward to your book as well. I know how difficult that is. So let me know. Yeah, so you we'll, do. We'll your book working. is fantastic, but it's hard. Thank you. It's hard. We'll we'll definitely give you an uplift before we get to the moment we're in in police reform. I want to hone in on education reform just for a moment uh because a lot of us got to know you through that education reform work. Um what's the state of education reform or the education reform movement in the country? And even a more difficult question is, have we come to a consensus on charters versus traditional public schools and how we best support our teachers?
1: Um, how, how real do you want me to be?
0: (laughs) shit, We curse on hearing everything else. I mean, we're trying to educate people. So, you know, you, you just tell the truth, shame the devil. You know, your mama say that all the time. Just tell the truth and shame the devil. Uh,
1: My, my, my opinion, it may not be the most popular, but it is steeped in, what I feel like is equal footing that I have in the spaces of kind of traditional reformers, even though that is a Nazi moron, but that is a fairly established space after 30 years. I have equal footing in, in that space and know a lot of those folks and hear their thinking often and in the space of people who wholesale reject that approach. The truth is, I think that educate the state of education reform is that it is enduring its own reckoning right now. And that a number of organizations that were started by white philanthropists, white social entrepreneurs are finding themselves having to answer to their staff, Mm -hmm. having to answer to the communities in which they serve for legitimate grievances, uh, for paternalistic savior complexes that went (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that went wild, right? Um, for what happens when good intentions don't meet good implementation and the the damage that has been caused. That said, I don't think that everything that has come out of that space is worthless. I think that there is a spirit of innovation, there is a spirit of creativity that the education space needed. Um, and that's not to say that there were people who had dedicated their lives to 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 that work that did not play important roles and have brilliant things to do and led in brilliant ways but it is to say that i know in particular a lot of people of color who found their footing through what are called education reform organizations but have been working very very diligently to make sure that in ways that unfortunately many traditional colleges of education have not been doing they've wanted to make sure that uh, that Elements like culturally responsive pedagogy, uh, an eye toward equity, really steeping things in the beliefs and opinions of the community are at the center instead of external to the plan. And I think that it is unwise to dismiss all of those folks and their good work out of hand because we've seen a number of innovations come particularly from people of color who have been doing people first culturally responsive for first, student-first work that the industry needs. And so, yeah, so broadly, I think it's going through a reckoning. And I think that there are some good seeds and some good folks and some good ideas that are finally starting to get the kind of juice that they deserve. You know, a couple of years ago, I sat on a, I sat on a panel at the during the opening uh, session of a major education funder conference and kept using the phrase culturally responsive pedagogy, and the articles that got written thereafter by white people were that um, <laughs> I had made it a Black Lives Matter rally, and that the conservatives in the room suddenly felt silenced, which was fascinating to me, because I was like, you run this whole thing. How are you possibly silenced in your own house? And now, those same folks are having to reckon with the fact that what people of color in this space have been saying for a long time was right, um, and that young people who were coming out of the schools that we served and built and all it had Appreciation for the things that went right, but real critique around the things that went wrong. And so if we are going to meet our intentions around creating uh truly equitable and excellent educational opportunities for all children, then it is incumbent upon everybody in the education space, whether you are a former, a traditionalist, somewhere in between, to pay very close attention to those voices. To the question of charters and traditional schools. For me, this fundamentally comes down to a question of democracy. So far too often, we allow people a false choice. We allow, in particular, parents of color, low-income parents, a really false choice. And we say that you can send your child to a school where you experience all of the innovation, but you have no voice, or a school where you have a voice, but That voice is going to be stifled um, by the traditions and the restrictions at play in broader society. And I actually just think that that's unfair. So all of that to say, now a few years later, those same people who wanted to silence our voices and telling many people of color inside of the education space that we were rabble-rousing troublemakers, now those folks are being... Uh, made to realize that what we tried to warn y'all about years ago (laughs) is now at your front door. And um, if we are truly going to be committed to creating excellent and equitable educational opportunities for all young people, irrespective of their zip code, racial background, country of origin, et cetera, then we have to listen to those voices. So your question about charters versus traditional schools I'll be honest with you, I'm one of those folks who cares less about school model and much more about outcomes. I think that there is a legitimate question involved when people, parents and students in particular, are experiencing the loss of their democracy and are being faced with folks who are going to make choices and decisions for them without ever considering their voice. And unfortunately, I think that there are parents who send their children to traditional schools and to charter schools who both experience that. There are folks with school boards that in theory are democratic, but are not actually listening to and engaging communities. And there are charter schools that are definitely not engaging communities. I think that there is criticism to go all around. One of the clear places is in school discipline, as we call it, or, or I prefer to call it student engagement there are some seriously problematic student discipline practices that happen in charter schools. There are also some seriously problematic uh, discipline practices that happen in traditional schools. And I've gone into charter schools and watched kids have to walk around with their arms pasted to their side with a bubble in their mouth because a seven-year-old is not supposed to talk, even though naturally that's what they do. And I've also had to get a seven-year-old out of handcuffs at a traditional public school. So I'd rather the finger pointing across Across the way, stop and everybody actually start to say, if I want to prove that the way that I have chosen to do this actually works, then let me get to some equitable and culturally responsive outcomes for young people instead of spending all of this time telling the other side what they're doing wrong. I think that there are very legitimate grievances that parents and students and communities should have whenever their democracy is being taken off the table. And so I think that those criticisms are legitimate, but it's actually not an argument that I spent a lot of time thinking about because a hey, no if 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 anybody had the answer <laughs> if anybody know, was doing this perfectly if nobody had a uh, fault here then then we wouldn't even be having this conversation we'd be talking about how well our students are doing and how much they're capable of which is what we should be focused on
0: before i get to policing let me just ask you a simple question how is ferguson doing how are things in ferguson now i know many times we just pick up our tents and say oh the story's not there anymore and move on but yeah. What's going on in Ferguson now?
1: I mean, the story is absolutely still in Ferguson. And what is happening in Ferguson and more broadly in St. Louis, if people choose to pay attention, and I'm so grateful for this question, what people will see is continued long-term disciplined organizing and community investment. So what people will see is the first Black woman mayor ever elected in Ferguson just a couple of months ago. People will see a two-year campaign to close a medium-security prison in downtown St. Louis that was finally successful in the last month. And not only will that facility close, that money will be redirected into community investments and social services. That is precisely the outcome that folks are talking about when they say defund the police. And there has been much bandying about, about whether or not that is a clear policy solution or um, a helpful slogan, and I, I find it interesting that people will spend more time analyzing whether the most oppressed are are fighting injustice the right way, and and not enough time on on how they are participating in the creation of justice themselves. Amen. Uh, <laughs> like I'm, I'm really tired. Like, don't do any more polling on that. It doesn't. We already know the polling on what happens when Black people protest and demand anything, anything whatsoever. Colin Kaepernick took a knee and it was still apparently disruptive and disrespectful and was asking for too much. So the idea that we can ever protest or make demands in ways that will be palatable to mainstream America is asinine and we can stop spending time on it because we already know the outcome. The question you should be asking is, what does defund the police actually look like? Because there are communities that are figuring out how to get it done. There are communities that are figuring out how to redirect money from the cultural state to social services that we should be spotlighting and highlighting and learning from. And Ferguson and more broadly, St. Louis is one of those places. We've got a Black woman in Tashara Jones who just won her re-election as St. Louis treasurer, who is trying to make sure that a lot of, A, that a lot of the relief that black communities need in the face of COVID is coming, and B, that those reinvestments are happening as needed. People like Kim Gardner, who was just reelected, another black woman progressive prosecutor uh, in St. Louis. um, Those are the kinds of stories that need to be told. These things have not come without disappointments. There was a lot of work by local organizers to elect Wesley Bell. Who replaced Bob McCullough. Bob McCullough, of course, was the White County prosecutor that failed to indict Darren Wilson for the murder of Michael Brown. Wesley Bell ran on the campaign promise to reopen that investigation and came out just a few weeks ago saying that he believed there was not enough evidence to charge Darren Wilson. We came to find out, though, that he hadn't actually reopened the investigation. He simply opened up the old files. Well, those old files were created under the leadership of a prosecutor that was part and parcel with the police union. So that stuff was deeply tainted. And that investigation should have started over. Um, and I think that that's an affront not only to the organizers who got him elected, but to Michael Brown and family. So it has not come without disappointment, but there has been very, very clear progress in the city of St. Louis and organizations like Action St. Louis and the Close the Workhouse campaign, Art City Defenders and so many more have been responsible for leading the city in that direction. And the entire country can really learn a lesson or two from how disciplined and continuous that work has been.
0: Before I let you go and before I let you get out of here, I got to, we got to have a, a brief conversation about police reform. And I want to talk first about federal police reform because your experience with the Obama administration, we know their record on police reform. You were one of the leading voices on the President's Commission on Policing in the wake of the Fer- Ferguson uprisings. What do you think was the incomplete work of the Obama years in police reform?
1: I think the incomplete work was, institutionalizing at the state and local level, some of the changes Mm -hmm. that were made. So there was progress. I want to be very clear about this. There was progress. The fact that we had a task force was in and of itself an important thing because it got on the record some of the things that needed to happen. But this was all the way back in 2015. So some of the things that we know came out of that was a deeper examination of how the DOJ used consent decrees, pattern and practice investigations, and equipped local municipalities to engage in um, external and independent investigations when the police killed somebody. These were really important points of progress. The Obama administration also dramatically reduced the amount to which local police departments were getting access to military equipment. So those, as people on in the media call them, chemical irritants that were used against us, tear gas, the pepper spray the MRAP, uh, the the sounds um, that were used against us, all of that stuff, there were fewer departments that got access to that decommissioned military equipment under the Obama administration. The challenge, though, is that there are nearly 18,000 police departments around the entire country. And really holding those locations to making these changes, if they wanted to have access to, for example, federal funds, would have been the natural next step. I believe it's a step that Hillary Clinton would have taken pretty easily, based on the conversations that I had with her personally, and some of the things she talked about publicly. What happened instead was we got a commander-in-chief, and I say that with a big asterisk by it, because as far as I'm concerned, that was a stolen election. What happened instead was we got somebody who came in and reversed all of that stuff and then made it worse. So you put somebody like Jefferson Beauregard Sessions in office, you put somebody like Bill Barr in office and they come and say, no more consent decrees, no more pattern and practice investigations. Y'all can have all of the equipment that you want, we are going to give you a a standard bearer in Donald Trump whose rhetoric will encourage your behavior. We will have police unions foaming at the mouth to endorse his election and his re-election. Like, that's what we got instead. Um, And had some of those things been institutionalized at the local and state level, it would have been harder for him to undo some of that stuff. And I don't necessarily think that that's the fault of the Obama administration, because this happened, the task force was formed you know, close to a year before his second term ended, but most certainly we needed a third term of a Democrat in office to start to institutionalize that stuff. And so that's, it's frightening, frankly, and there is, policing is local, state, and federal work, but we certainly lost some massive ground under this administration uh, on the federal side.
0: Talk to me about the two leading Democratic policing reform proposals. You got Justice and Policing Act and the Breathe Act. Explain to listeners what those proposals do. Why hasn't the Breathe Act gotten more support from Democratic House members? And I guess the, the even bolder question is, maybe we flip the Senate. What does police reform look like with a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and maybe a Democratic president?
1: So, I would want people to understand that uh, in theory, the Justice and Policing and Brief Act can work together. And I, I don't want people to see them as, um, yeah, I, I think that that's important. That said, what's specific in the Justice and Policing Act are a lot of policy changes. So, things like uh, enacting a national use of force standard that all police across the country are held to, um, are one of the critical kind of immediate things that can happen in regards to accountability. The BREATHE Act is much more focused on prevention, right? So, and, and it's not to say that either one is less important, but it is to say that the ultimate goal is to prevent the killings of people like Breonna Taylor and Michael Brown and Jacob Blake um, not simply to hold officers accountable, both have to happen. But the ultimate vision is to prevent it. So the Breathe Act is essentially, um, and and its champion in the in uh, the House is is Ayanna Presley, Rashida Sulaiman, some other people. The Breathe Act is all around divesting from the institutions that continuously perpetuate violence and harm black and brown and indigenous communities and moving that money into the social services that we know help those communities and keep those communities safe happy healthy and whole and i think what is to your question about uh like what happens next especially if we take back the senate well first of all hopefully we get a black woman in the supreme court seat and Ruth Bader Ginsburg can finally put her feet up. (laughs) We can start taking our courts back um, because this is important both to accountability and prevention.
0: That's my number one B political issue. Our courts. Democrats don't talk about it enough. We talk about it on this show all the time. It drives me completely insane. Right behind African-American female mortality. The federal courts and the federal judiciary are my most important issues.
1: I mean, that that's I mean, to take a pause from your question, that is the bread and butter. Right. This is precisely how. And a a repressive regime represses over decades and not just two presidential administrations. When you put young, and I want to say new conservatives, so like even worse than a Reagan conservative, you put young new conservatives on the bench who will be on federal benches for two, three, four, five decades, some of them, you... Change the landscape of the Supreme Court such that six out of the nine of the justices are conservatives and you have a hand in like law and precedent for the next hundred, if not 200 years. Right. That should be the thing that frightens all of us enough to go and figure out how we make a plan to vote today. Because yes. everything that matters, voting rights, uh, uh, the right to choose, uh, education, immigration, everything that matters will come down, not just to whether or not Trump wins another term, but to whether or not there are justices on the bench that continue to push us on the wrong side of history for literal decades. Um but yeah, so so we have a so so hopefully we take back the Senate, we get that black woman on the court and we start righting some of the wrongs in, in the court that Trump has enacted. Um, but but hopefully we also get something like the Justice and Policing Act passed in the first like hundred days so that we can get to work on the Breathe Act, right? What would be ideal is that you pass the Breathe Act in the first hundred days. I don't know if we could actually get that,
0: that mm, close. <laughs>
1: Right. But, but I recognize the importance of never letting go of what absolute liberation looks like, even while we take one step and one step and one step further. So, yeah, I think that there is clearly a lot of work to be done. But ultimately, we have to be looking at this holistically because, yeah, justice and policing, the Breve Act, those things are critically important. What's also critically important is who your mayor is, because they usually appoint your police So chief.
0: that brings me to my last question. I mean, as a, you, I can tell you do this for a living because now I'm on my last question. And that's the segue. Like, what, what should we be demanding from our mayors and city councils? What should we be demanding from our state legislatures? That's one part. And then where should we be pushing the Biden-Harris team on policing issues? Yeah. What can we do ourselves? And then politically, what should we be pushing for?
1: I think what we should be demanding in our communities, A, you should be in touch with the folks who are leading in your community, because some of these things are specific. So in places like Kentucky, where Breonna Taylor was killed, it is about lots of things, including no-knock warrants. And you want to be in line and aligned with with what your local organizers are saying. Generally, though, it is things like the undoing of qualified immunity because it is near impossible to charge police officers when they have killed somebody.
0: We're talking undoing. to you, Tim Scott. Tim Scott, we're talking to you.
1: Oh, my gosh. And 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 to be clear, there is action that could be could be taken on qualified immunity at the local, state and federal level. And everybody's pointing at each other like, no, it's your job. It's all their job. Qualified immunity has to end abolish it completely. What also has to happen, though, is. These police unions and police bills of rights have to be broken. Police bills of rights are usually passed through state legislatures. Louisiana is one of the most egregious examples of a police bill of rights. One of the things stipulated in there is that police officers who have killed someone have up to 30 days before they can be questioned. 30 days some of these policing and contracts and bills of rights also give police officers the ability to see the evidence that will be used against them before they are investigated this is precisely why we see folks going back and making up stories this is why we see the louisville metropolitan police department trying to offer somebody that they've arrested a sweetheart deal To as long as they say that Brianna Taylor was involved in this drug trade, so that they can retroactively justify bursting into her apartment late at night. This is uh, this is enabled by things like police union bill of rights, by police bill of rights rather, and police union contracts. So those are things to demand in your local community. Ask me your second question again, because I want to make the, sure I the
0: Biden it. Harris team. I mean, I oh, we, yes. they are doing great work. They have a great criminal justice plan. I tell people that black folk, particularly are nuanced enough that we can work like hell to get them elected and push them to be better. What are some of the things you would do to give them a more bold police agenda? Um, some of the things we should be asking for, not just now, but in the first hundred days.
1: I think on that list is ending qualified immunity. Um, I think on that list is denying local police departments particular federal grants when they have shown a clear pattern and practice of violence in our communities. Um, I think it is pursuing the Breathe Act with clarity and intention and building the kind of uh, uh, bipartisan or partisan support they need to get it done. I also think that the rhetoric, especially during this campaign moment, is really critical. Right now, you've got two parties who are both having a law and order conversation, and it is not working. Donald Trump very clearly wants to turn this into a law and order election. He is betting that in addition to the voter suppression, in addition to parading himself like the greatest president for Black people since Abraham Lincoln, in addition to all of these other falsehoods and uh, work that he is doing to, to make this election go the way that he wants, that he can also Play white people and play into their fear of black people by making this an election about protests and what he calls law and order, even though he is an impeached criminal himself. Democrats have to not play into this premise. Answering law and order with more law and order does not actually create a distinction for the people who Democrats need to show up in November, Correct. Um, or as it were right now, because people need to start voting early and getting their absentee ballots right now. So I think what is important is for Democrats to reframe the conversation around justice, to remind people that it was police violence and the violence that the Trump administration has emboldened from white supremacists and racist vigilantes, that brought us to this moment. It was the people who killed Ahmaud Arbery, the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world, who sat front row in the Trump rally that have brought us to this moment, not the folks who are suffering from the oppression. So I think that they need to reframe this conversation so that voters can see very clearly an alternative to what Donald Trump is offering when it comes to what the outcomes will be for policing. I think, yes, the distinctions between them are very clear. But for folks who are very focused on criminal justice, they want to hear very clearly from Democrats. We know the game Donald Trump is playing and we're not going to fall for it.
0: Man, special shout out to you. I mean, we could we could sit here all day and go deeper, but we wanted to at least touch the surface on Thursdays. We like to have our guest who are journalists or people who have a specific expertise and you are all of these things. I want you to come back on as soon as your book is ready to come out. If not sooner, Mm -hmm. thank you so much. Shout out to your amazing husband and let him know that when he, uh, when I'm in DC, when the Rona lets us be great, I need some headshots. So I'm coming, I'm coming (laughs) over to the studio. All right. I will make
1: that happen. Shout out to your beautiful family, always to your babies, to your amazing wife and to all that you do. Thanks for having these conversations, friend.
0: Sounds good. Thank you so much. Have a blessed day.